Shalom, and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. So shall we begin by introducing ourselves? We can do that. We could do, sure. But well, should we go chronologically by time at Temple? Yeah. All right. Well, I was I was at I was there 1984 from July 1984. Oh well, but I I signed on sort of for three years, maybe two, but I got married after two and I left. So, but I was in Memphis. Still till 1993. What's the story? Can you tell us what and what I think beyond that, what, what since 1993, what have you been? Oh, okay. You want me to just go and do that? Okay. Well, first I was, first I worked as a secretary at Harvard Law School, but when I realized Harvard Law School students wouldn't date a secretary, so I left that job. I worked at Little Baron Publishing for a while, then I moved to New York, worked at Simon & Schuster Publishing for a year, for a week, and then I became a casting director, and I was that until 1979, no, yeah, I guess. Anyway, I gave it all up, went to rabbinical school and was ordained in 1984. So anyway, Memphis was my first job. I loved it. I met my husband there, so we got married, but he couldn't leave yet. So I stayed till nine, I stayed till 1993 there. I did um, some part-time rabbiing in Meridian and Blavel, Meridian, Mississippi, and Blavel, Arkansas. Got my southern accent up. Anyway, from there. After my husband then could move, he said to me once after I got home, exhausted from a weekend in in Meridian, Mississippi, I walked in the door with a huge headache and my husband said, hi, how would you like to move? I'll follow you. You decide where you want to go. That's a, that's a real love, isn't it? Anyway, so we moved. We did a two-career move to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area. And I worked there as a as an associate rabbi with a friend who was just, I mean, it was just a wonderful job. I was there for until I retired. And I retired a little bit early because I had a medical problem and that's gone now, which is great. But by the time it was gone, I was I was 60 and I thought, gee, we don't want to move just for me to have a job for a few years and then retire. And so I retired then and 
we moved into Center City, Philadelphia. I did a lot of, you know, I did some weddings of girls who had been con for Manzmer. It was just awesome. It was a wonderful kind of freelance time. And then we moved from there. In 2010, it snowed. In one winter, it snowed 78 and a half inches, and we were out of there. Moved to Norfolk, Virginia, where we're both retired. I'm 78, so I'm old. I'm retired. Well, we are so grateful to have you um, all. Um, Judy Ringel was able to rejoin. Um, I will ask you, Judy, to unmute so you can say your introduction. And then um, I think we've heard from Connie, and then we'll be able to pass on. Do you need me to come to you, Judy, to unmute? <laughs> Judy, there, there's probably at the top right of your screen a little thing that says mute or unmute. Can't hear you. Nope. Okay. Can you there hear me now? Yes. Sorry about the technical problems. And, and Rabbi Bess and I are not in the same room, even though we're both at Temple. So she's running back and forth. <laughs> but I am here and I wanted to welcome everyone uh, to the discussion and, and certainly welcome um, our female rabbis who have served this congregation. They're an extraordinary group of women and I'm proud to be associated with them. I remember all of them and, and fondly. And um, so I think Rabbi Bess has already introduced everybody. Have you, have you Bess? Okay, well, then chronologically, starting in 1984, uh, and I, I guess on your screen, sort of, well, uh, top left, or at least on my screen, top left, uh, Rabbi Connie Golden, uh, beneath her, Valerie Cohen, Tara Feldman, Katie Bowman, and you all know uh, Rabbi Bess Molner, who we are fortunate to still have until June. <laughs> um, okay, the last 15 minutes of our session will be uh, reserved for audience Q&A. So if you are joining us on Zoom, please write your questions in the chat box. Okay, uh, so you have heard um, Connie uh, Golden talk about what, how she got to, to uh, be the associate rabbi in Temple Israel and um, what she's been doing since then. So I'd like to move on to Rabbi Cohen who came next. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I want to thank Rabbi Wolner for really putting this together. It's just it's so exciting to be here and for Judy for moderating and for Rabbi Golden for going first. Always great oh. to have someone to go first in many, many ways. Um, I came to Memphis in, um, in 1999, and I'll tell you the primary reason I wanted to come to Memphis was because of Rabbi Harry Danziger. Um, and then when I heard that Rabbi Micah Greenstein was here, it was a bonus. For those of you who don't know, I grew up in North and Central Florida. So some of those years were spent in Jacksonville with Rabbi Greenstein Sr. as my rabbi. And I even took a couple of courses with him at the University of Florida, um, and he wrote one of my recommendations to HUC. And um, Rabbi Micah Greenstein taught my sister in Hebrew school and sang in my mom's choir. So it was just beshert. It was just meant to be. I stayed through 2003. Um, perhaps I would have stayed longer, but many of you know that um, my husband, Jonathan, or JC, as you may know him, um, became director of the Henry S. Jacobs camp. 
And when the congregation in Jackson, Mississippi opened up and was really a good match for me, that's when I decided that it was time for me to go. Um, I was a rabbi in Jackson for 11 years um, and had a wonderful time there. Um, but I think we got to the place where both the congregation and I needed to grow um, and needed to do it in a different, a different way. So I really searched the entire country over, um, was just looking for the right match and really looking for a congregation that needed healing um, in some way. And I found the perfect match at Temple Emanuel Sinai in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, uh, I think the co-chairs of the search committee will tell you within the hour, we all knew that it was a good match. And it was because um, they were a congregation that had just merged. And so they definitely needed some healing. It had been a tumultuous merge, but they were in some ways a very healthy congregation. Um, and what really marked them was their, um, was their really uh, strong and smart leadership. I've been there for almost eight years, um, and you know it's a good match in that a wonderful community because it is so cold and snowy here. Um, when Judy asked if it was if everybody was enjoying some sunshine, I'm in my basement looking at some beautiful sun and a lot of snow. Um, so um, I'm a southerner misplaced in New England with a wonderful, wonderful community. But I want to just jump back to Memphis to conclude, which is my time in Memphis, those four short years, I learned a lot. I grew a lot. Um, I, I created some really wonderful relationships. Many people I'm seeing here um, uh, in, in the Zoom, including some people from Jackson and lots from Worcester as well. But most of all, in Memphis, I developed my voice as a rabbi. So I, I thank you all for that. Lovely. Okay, um, uh, Tara, you're up. Okay, so let's see. I'll just backtrack a little before I get to my Memphian years. Uh, as and it's just it's so moving for me to see everyone on the screen. It's really amazing um, to see the names and the faces. So I was born to two non-Jewish parents. Judaism came into my life when my mother remarried a Jewish man when I was. 11 or so. And I was very blessed to become part of uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner's synagogue where I was welcomed and had a bat mitzvah and uh, did a lot of very formative learning, even if it came in sort of more in my high school years. And I went off to Vassar to become an actress um, and then realized I wasn't cut out for that. I was a Russian language and literature major. And then when, then after that, I have too much education. I got a master's in, in, in education at um, Leslie College in Cambridge. And then it was those years that I really began to want to embrace my Jewish identity as an adult. And I went to the mikvah and did a more formal conversion. And it was around that time that uh, Larry Kushner said to me, you know, have you ever thought about being a rabbi? And I hadn't, but I realized that it combined so many of the things that were most meaningful to me. And so I went off to HUC at about age 30. And my first pulpit was in Brooklyn. And it was during those years that I met the other rabbi Feldman, Mayor Feldman, and um, had my first child. And then we came to Memphis, which I didn't even know where it was. <laughs> <laughs> when we came, but I quickly found out, and it what an incredible three and a half years that what it was like 2004. Um, we came and were there for three and a half years, and so and much to share about my time there. Yes, uh, what uh, 
very quickly, uh, where are you now? And I am now. Yes, I am now. Um, we left Memphis and lived in Israel for a year and a half, and then landed in Great Neck, uh, New York, where I have been serving uh, as a co-senior rabbi with with Rabbi Mayer for 13 years. And in um, June, we are making Aliyah as a family. Our children are now 16 and 20, and they are living there. And so, yes, we I'm, I'm, I'm on the precipice of a yet another big, big transformation on this journey. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's exciting. Um, okay. Rabbi Katie Bowman. Hello. Um, I echo uh, what has been said. It's so um, moving and meaningful to be here amongst all of you and to see everyone's faces. And um, when when I uh, I will contain I will contain myself, but I feel a lot of emotion, and it's it's all it's really good um, to see everyone. My I served at Temple from as a rabbi from 2009 to 2019. Before that, I I grew up in this region and knew of Temple Israel as just the really big, beautiful temple that I came to at Conclaves that um, was was uh, was exquisite and um, made me understand uh, all different kinds of Jewish community and what that could look like. Toward the end of college, I was offered the opportunity to come and work at Temple as an intern, a um, music and educational intern. So I worked very closely with Cantor John Kaplan, uh, extremely formative presence in my life and with Rabbi Greenstein. Uh, of course, also extremely formative uh, relationship. And with Rabbi Valerie Cohen, who was such a mentor to me during that year that I was an intern at Temple. And um, I, I still have so many lessons from all of those leaders that I apply constantly. The, the year, that was 2002. 2003, I moved to Washington, D.C. after that, my internship year at Temple. And I came back about monthly to... Um, to do te- to do teaching, youth group, music, and uh, I knew I knew when I left Memphis, and it was it was made even more sure the next year that I would go to rabbinical school. Wanted to come back to this region and serve in it, um, and and thought that being a rabbi would be the best way to do that. So uh, I went to I went to HUC, and then was so very blessed to be able to come back to Temple Israel, which is a place that formed me as a rabbi and serve it for 10 years. Um, we just recently moved from Temple Israel to, um, I'm now the senior rabbi at Turo Synagogue in New Orleans. And um, that has been a, a wonderful next chapter of my, of my time. And I feel even at this point in my rabbinate, very connected to um, to Memphis and to Temple. It feels because because I have the privilege of being at camp and um, and in this in the region and this in the Soir region. I feel I feel like we're all sort of rowing together, maybe from different different uh, different poles, but but on the same boat. So, thank you, Katie. And now on to um, Beth Walner. We know where you are now, Beth, but. Um, tell us a little about how you got here and where you're going from here. So um, I am in the midst of my seventh year here at Temple. Um, Part of, um, I don't want to say the blame, the credit 
for my ending up uh, here at Temple is actually because of Rabbi Bowman, um, as well as Kara Greenstein, who I believe is here somewhere, and Alex Evans, who yeah. I met at Havana Shira as a fifth year, um, a Jewish music <laughs> conference, as a fifth year um, rabbinic student. And I, for those of you who know me, I'm you know, a little honest about how I feel about things often. And so I um, met this wonderful rabbi, Katie Bowman, and I, and I was going into my last year of rabbinical school and I turned to her and I said, please tell me everything is going to be okay when I'm done with school. <laughs> and she went on and on about how being a rabbi was better than she ever could have imagined um, when she was thinking about becoming a rabbi and that the community she was part of um, filled her up in way in unexpected and ways that just made her feel so ridiculously blessed. And although we didn't reconnect at that conference, I think the whole time it was only this bus ride from the airport, um, the van ride from the airport to the camp um, that really stuck with me. And so when I um, was getting ready to apply to places, I was single at the time and I really kind of threw a wide net, but like Memphis wouldn't have been necessarily on my radar, except that I remembered that conversation in that van with that rabbi and so I went to go look because I didn't know this was the only reformed synagogue I was like oh I wonder if it's the synagogue where that rabbi was and not only was it but she was going to still be there and so uh, I walked into my interview and she looked at me and said it's you and uh thankfully she and rabbi greenstein and elkin shite who were uh, there interviewing decided that um they were were as in love with me as I was with them. And um, I, I was able to to come here to Memphis to begin my rabbinate, which I think as many people have shared, it has been such um, an honor and a blessing and just filled with richness beyond um, imagination. Um, and we are, as many of you know, I'm married to uh, Rabbi Jeremy Simons, who who's also on this call. Um, if anyone needs a rabbi, this is a great Zoom to, you know, just put out a, a request. Um, and we are preparing to unfortunately leave Memphis. We have loved our time here. We feel so strongly about it. We built our family here. Um, we deepened our rabbinates here, but we are getting ready to move to Northern California to co-lead a congregation, much like um, Rabbi Feldman and her husband do. Um, but we are gonna be in Davis, California, Congregation Beit Haverim. Terrific. Okay, we certainly wish you good fortune in that move. Um, although we miss all of you when you leave, I can, I can attest to that. Okay, going back to um, Rabbi Golden, Connie, um, since you were the first woman to serve as a rabbi of Temple Israel, um, and it was, what, seven, eight years after, let's see, what was it, 12 years after uh, Rabbi Sally Prezan, what really broke the gender barrier. Um, I'm wondering, what were your expectations when you accepted the position at Temple Israel, and did the congregation's response to you meet those expectations? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you, Judy. Um, first of all, I, I didn't start by saying how much I loved Memphis and how much I miss all of you, and it is true. It's wonderful to see so many people I know. Anyway, no, my time at you know, I was older, quote unquote, I was the second older student at HUC. I was ordained when I was, I was 41 already. So I didn't really have expectations. I wanted to grow as a rabbi. Uh, I couldn't believe, it. you know, Harry Danziger told me that at some point someone had said to him, 
I don't even know who said it, so it doesn't matter. Someone said to him on the board, go ahead, go look. Look at students, just don't bring back a woman because if she's single, she's going to get married and leave us. Or if she's married, she's going to get pregnant and leave us. As it turned out, I did get married and leave. I didn't leave Memphis, but I got married. You know, when I got married at age 42, 42 and a half, I really felt I needed time with my husband rather than time away from him working all the time. But my expectations were, it was my first job as a rabbi. I adored Harry. I was just, I was just beyond thrilled when he, when he indicated that he wanted me to come. I learned a lot from him. I wanted to grow as a rabbi and I did. I had no expectations about the woman thing. I didn't know. Harry told me that a long time after, not when I was still there. Um, everybody was wonderful. I mean, Judy, you were there. You knew everybody was warm and no one seemed to treat me differently as a woman. And I didn't think of myself as a woman rabbi. I thought of myself as a rabbi who happens to be a woman. And, that, and that's, that's the way I was. And I think it worked out beautifully. It was Perfect for me, absolutely perfect. My very first thing, I'll say this and then stop. My very first thing that I was asked to do by somebody outside of the synagogue, outside of the temple, was I was asked by the Women Truckers of America to do an invocation at their meeting, which was at the Peabody. I mean, they did it because I was a woman, I'm sure. But they were nice and I, I didn't do, I didn't say anything particular about being a woman. I just said what I, I don't remember the invocation. But I just thought that was a wonderful beginning. Terrific. Okay. Um, Valerie Cohen, Rabbi Cohen, you came next. Um, what are your, some of your reflections on your time at Temple Israel and how do you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, um, how do you think your work at Temple or your service at Temple shaped your rabbinical career? Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, I just, I want to in some ways respond to, to Connie. Um, I did get pregnant while I was at Temple. <laughs> Um, and that was not the reason I left. Um, and it was, um, it, it was a, a great experience in terms of how, how warmly um, my son was welcomed. And, and I, I certainly won't forget the bris and how many people came and that sort of thing. So, so we really became part of the community. Um, I, I would say that, um, you know, maybe I was a little naive coming in because I had thought that you know, wonderful people like Rabbi Golden had had fought all the fights for me. Um, and and yes, I, I certainly was welcome. But I, I do think that there was still some, you know, some little discomfort. Um, I, I was years later, I was shown um, a beautiful college essay by um, someone who had been in high school when I was there, who um, who wrote, I don't know how I'll feel about a woman rabbi. I, I don't know um, if I'll feel 
good about it. She wrote that she had thought that when she was younger. In her college essay, she wrote, as she got closer to me, um, it really changed her her uh, experience about it. So even teenagers in, I mean, this is 1999 to 2003, you know, um, some were, were wondering because she hadn't been around when Rabbi Golden was there. I mean, there was a long stretch of time. Yeah. Um, so so I, I just want to say it was, um, you know, I mean, it was over 20 years ago. Um, there were some mostly overwhelmingly embraced, um, but I, I could start to feel, oh, maybe I, I am a little naive. There are little things that are, are different and still continue today. Um, some of the things that... Yeah, some of the things that make me giggle. Um, I don't know if you still wear robes, but we ro- wear robes. And I remember standing in the receiving line and someone coming up to me and saying, you should really wear pearls with that robe. Um, <laughs> oh. Right. So, um, <laughs> but at the same time, um, I, I remember teaching Torah study and just loving it and had a, a wonderful group of students who we engaged and, and, and I, I did do some things that were specifically, um, you know, acknowledging myself as a woman rabbi, I taught a, a women's studies group um, for a period of time. So, so I think trying to figure out that balance between, you know, my, my gender, which I didn't want to not acknowledge, and being a rabbi was really important, um, and how to figure out who I was going to be as a rabbi. Um, a lot of that really took place in Memphis. Before we move on, does any do any of the rest of you have any comments on, you know, what what uh, Valerie and Connie were talking about? I do. I think Valerie, did you establish the clergy chicks? There no, was that- a, there, the, okay. There was there was I think there was an influence of of someone from Temple Israel who created this sort of interfaith female clergy group that met in Midtown. So it was really powerful for me. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I, I mean, I did have an interfaith women's clergy group, but we did not call it the clergy chicks. So I wonder yeah. if it's the same group. <laughs> I think it evolved to that because they gave kudos to you for that group, which was very Im- important for me. Um, I found I found an old email. I'm a saver of things. As an, and as I prepare to move, I am looking through all my Memphis correspondence. And this is a, a, a lovely letter, um, which I, I chose to print. <laughs> that that um, asked why I never wore um, pantsuits, uh, why why I never wore dresses on the on the bima, and that I would look very good in the you know just the whole <laughs> a little fashion advice. <laughs> Two thousand and seven. Amazing. <laughs> um, since you bring it up, um, Tara, I'm curious. I, well, I, I had a question prepared for you that you partially answered already. Um, about your interactions with the wider Jew, well, Jewish community, both lay people and rabbis, uh, do you think you were treated with the same level of respect that male uh, rabbis enjoy? I felt tremendous respect. One of my most exciting, uh, one of the most exciting aspects of my time in Memphis was these incredible ecumenical relationships. I mean, with with the broader clergy community, so inspiring, the work being done and in in a community that's very much defined by faith. Mm -hmm. So I felt actually, maybe it was the circles in which I was moving, but felt very embraced, uplifted and inspired in those circles. What about the rest of the Jewish community? 
Maybe a little less so. <laughs> uh, it sort of depended on the rabbi, actually. Uh, it, it really was, you know, it wasn't, I, there were Orthodox rabbis that treated me with tremendous dignity. I can think of one in particular, meeting him in, on a hospital visit and just being struck by that. I think it really depended on the person. Sure. Okay. Um, Katie, you were very involved in the uh, wider community, uh, the interfaith community. Um, and um, can you look back on that through the prism of being a, a woman rabbi, female rabbi? Sure. I, I share some of what Tara just said that, that I, I found um, such inspiration and meaning in being in relationship with other clergy and in, in, in interfaith settings and in community work. And there were certainly communities and individuals in that wider circle that maybe lacked lacked um, context for a woman faith leader and and didn't understand I, I, I should say um, when I, when I think about this issue that um, Rabbi Micah Greenstein was incredibly supportive just a champion for me um, of, of granting me space to be myself and and to um, to have opportunities to speak and to lead and represent temple in in that community that he's so active in it has had such a huge impact on and I think that um, with that support and over time forming you know long-term meaningful authentic relationships most of those barriers broke down with most of those people in most of those spaces I found that that much of the time it was um, it was just a lack of lack of exposure a lack of experience with a woman rabbi with a woman leader who was her own leader and wasn't necessarily doing doing the bidding of her male boss, which was never which was never the dynamic that um, that I felt doing that work on behalf of Temple. Okay. Uh, moving on to Rabbi Walner. Um, now this gets a little. This is kind of a long question, um, and she'll understand why. Uh, Beth, you pointed out to me recently that starting in 1972 with Rabbi Sally Presan and continuing until 2016, the language on the ordination certificates given to female rabbis in the reform movement was slightly different from the language on the certificates given to male rabbis. Interestingly, the wording was the same in English, but in Hebrew, there was a slight difference. I don't know if any, if all of you are even aware of this. The certificates given to the men awarded them the title of, quote, our rabbi and teacher. But on the women's certificate, the word our was left off in Hebrew. So they were given the title rabbi and teacher. To me, uh, the elimination of the word our reflects the discomfort in the beginning, at least, of at least some of the rabbinic leaders at Hebrew Union College all men, of course, at the time, with the ordination of women. Would you care to comment on that? <laughs> I know you would. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so um, I did um, speak uh, about this from the BIMA a few, uh, I guess, two weeks ago um, in that, and I don't, uh, Katie, I don't know if you remember this. 
but it was 2016 when um, an article came out because HUC, as far as I know, did not send an email to all of their alumni um, letting us know of this discrepancy. So at least I found out from like an article in maybe the foreword or something like that, um, acknowledging that they now made it so that um, students can choose which language they have, either the um, the same that has been given historically to rabbis for um, hundreds of years, um, which is what's on the men's certificate, or um, using the language that has been on female um, ordination certificates since 1972. Um, and uh, I, when I was saying, I don't know if Katie remembers, um, and I mentioned this in my, my sermon, but I remember reading that article and I probably went to Katie's office and was like, did you know this? Because I had no idea that because, again, like when you think about getting your degree from any institution, um, you would never think to compare your, um, you know, your bachelor's degree, what it looks like printed out to um, someone of a different gender or anything like at least I wouldn't, it wouldn't even occur to me. So it didn't occur to us. Um, and I'm even married to a rabbi. Um, I wasn't at the time yet, but um, I marched into Rabbi Greenstein's office at the time he was the only male rabbi on staff um, and looked at it. And I was just um, shocked and upset. And there is um, a wonderful article about the discrepancy. Um, I know I've already shared this book with you all about the sacred calling. Um, this came out celebrating four decades of women in the rabbinate. Now we're about at, we're entering the fifth decade. Um, but it just talks about um, kind of the the significance of that um, that difference and how it was also kept a secret. Um, and it's something that's only in the Hebrew, which is meant to um, try to make it harder to notice altogether. And so I think um, you know HUC, the um, institution we all were ordained from, like has not um, yet um, put anything out about how they plan to address it other than letting students from 2016 on um, change it. But um, Connie, it looked like you had no idea that your ordination certificate had anything different on it than, <laughs> so still people are still um, coming to knowledge about this. So I guess Connie, if you wouldn't mind sharing how it feels to discover that right now. I, it, it doesn't surprise me. And honestly, it doesn't bother me. I mean, I, I don't believe, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't believe in women separating themselves as rabbis. So, you know, I have some problems with WRN. <clears throat> they have problems with me. Um, you know, I don't believe in having a women's Seder. If people want to do it, they can. But to me, a Seder, it's a family thing. So don't leave the men out. It doesn't bother me. I'm just surprised. I didn't know it. Is yeah, but, yeah, I'm glad it doesn't bother you. I think I think what bothers me about it is the fact that they wanted to keep it a secret because they knew they yeah. were not making it equal. Um, and the re and Sally Presan, as she shared with us when she was with our community, shared a story of she did not receive her ordination certificate on her ordination day. She assumed it was because they were trying to figure out, um, she received, received an empty tube. She assumed it was because they were trying to figure out um, how to make the Hebrew like in the feminine, the, the language, and that it was going to be identical to the men's. She didn't know until four decades later, they had <laughs> not bestowed on her the same equal title as her male classmates. Um, and again, that went on for, for decades. And so, um, you know, I- It doesn't bother me because it never affected me as a rabbi. No one ever treated me differently because my ordination certificate, you know, said something different. Anyone, Valerie? 
Um, yeah. So, uh, so Rabbi Wolner, I'm so glad you brought that up. I just found out this past year. So, um, and, and, it, uh, you know, so Rabbi Golden, I'm so glad you feel that way. For me, it was incredibly painful um, and shocking, shocking that it had been kept a secret, shocking that it had been revealed however many years ago. And I still didn't know. I mean, you know, like the next time I was in my office, cause it was COVID. So I wasn't in my office a lot. I went and looked and yeah, it, it was, it was very hard because of how, I mean, how that line had been drawn. Um, and, you know, some of the things when I talked about when I came to Memphis, I was a little naive. Um, like Rabbi Golden, I, throughout rabbinical school and early in my years in Memphis, I said, I don't have any need for WRN. Um, I will tell you the Women's Rabbinic Network, I would be lost without them today. Um, and, and I learned that, I don't remember how many years ago I learned that, but, but the support that they have given, the work that they have done, the incredible um, uh, strides that they have made in many different ways that have benefited both women and men, uh, male rabbis, and actually clergy uh, across the board um, and other denominations as well. Um, so that's what I mean by in terms of I have changed a lot in, in my perception of what, what we need. But um, yeah, just hearing you talk about it is, is still painful. Yeah. I'm so sad. I'm sad for you, Valerie. I really am. And and I understand and I know many women who just without WRN wouldn't feel the kind of support and love that they need as, as women rabbis. So yeah. I respect you for that. I've just, they just haven't treated me great. So. And, I, and I will say, hey, we, um, we, we're not here to discuss the WRN, but I will say I am no. a big supporter of the WRN. And I do hope that um, those of you who watched Rabbi Sally Presan's session with us, um, know that there is now a Rabbi Sally Presand fund through the WRN that supports um, equality in the rabbinate. And so, um, you know, we all have our different experiences, but I do also want to always put a plug in for supporting the Women's Rabbinic Network. I, like Valerie, um, Rabbi Cohen mentioned, I was one of those students who thought all of the rabbis who came, the women who came before um, me had paved the way and that I had no need or use for any separate organization. And I can tell you within the first year of being here in Memphis, um, I discovered very quickly um, that there was a difference um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that I was treated differently every day or every hour of every day but um, that having that support system of just saying yes this sounds like a gender issue or um, what kind of support do you need what kind of professional development so many different things that um, help support um, and so just wanted to put a plug in for WRN sorry <laughs> go ahead Judy. Terry you're nodding your head do you have anything to add on this point? No more just underscoring and thinking about how in my own rabbinate, I think I have sought out circles of women, whether it's through, you know, a women's Israel trip or a meditation group, or there is a certain kind of support and grounding that I think can happen in very healing and empowering ways in those circles. And is also just helps you remember it's not you're not crazy <laughs> the circles of other people experience the same thing too yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's always very helpful okay here's a question for all of you um how do you think female rabbis have changed the reform movement and the rabbinate that's the tough one i'm just going to jump in first because um i want to just i'm not answering that question Judy, I'm sorry, but I, I am. I did just want to mention that Memphis Ministers Association. I don't know if it still exists, but it was very strong in the community. 
when I was there and they were wonderful to me, really wonderful, partly because there were other women clergy there from other religions. It was just, it was fine. It was wonderful. I was president one year. Even. Um, it, it was great. And I, I also was president of now or national association of retired reform rabbis. And I just want to say that organization as well is wonderful. And so whenever y'all feel that you're ready for retirement, come to Nahor because you will be majorly respected as a woman. I'm sorry, Judy, go on. People answer her question. Anybody care to comment on the question of how uh, female rabbis have changed the reform movement or changed the rabbinate in general? Well, I think that that's a huge question, Judy, as you, I'm sure you <laughs> know that that um, it the answer would be equally huge. But I think one one facet is that brought it's important for individuals to see themselves reflected in in all in all parts of the leadership that touch their lives. And I think having people of all genders ordained as rabbis serving communities bestows a, a greater recognition of the humanity of our of the congregations that we that we serve and so i love um you know i love the story that uh rabbi cohen told about the the you know the essay of a young person who um, who grew up with her as a rabbi and there have been comments in the chat about each person here and how that the way that person conducted themselves as a rabbi touched, touched their lives. And, and so I, um, and, and I'm certainly a, as a, as a young, as a student, as a, as an intern, as a rabbinical student coming back when, when um, Rabbi Feldman was here and, and really enjoying her leadership. I don't know that I would have known what I was capable of as a leader, had I not had these models. And I suspect the truth that is true of many people. So that's one, um, one component of the changes that I think we've brought. Great, great answer. Anyone else? Yeah, so, I, so I don't know if, if, that if how much women made the changes or the rabbinate was changing and so it attracted women. Um, when mm -hmm. I was a rabbinical student, I lived with um, Louise Reichert, um, who was 80 when I moved in with her. She was the <laughs> widow of Rabbi Victor Reichert, who had been the senior rabbi of Rockdale Congregation in, in Cincinnati. So I heard all the dirt on <laughs> um, what it was like to be a true Rebbitzin. And she talked about all of the things that she would do. I mean, she did pastoral care. She knew everybody's names. Um, there's just so many things that she did that is now part of the rabbinate. Her husband gave sermons and he taught um, and life cycle events. And that was really, that was what he did. Um, but so much more, it, it's just so broader. And the, the rabbinate itself is not just congregational rabbinate. There, there's just so much more to it. So again, I don't know if that's, women influencing the rabbinate or the rabbinate just changing because it's more diverse um, uh, and, and more diverse in more ways than just women. Um, and, and I think that that kind of shows it listening and remembering Louise Riker talk about the Rebbitzin's role. And now it's um, just a broader view of what it means to be a rabbi. Well, there's more diversity throughout, well, throughout society, but especially throughout Judaism, there's more acceptance of 
of uh, gays and lesbians and and I mean all kinds of of different people differences among people um, and I would think that that the women rabbis were the first step along that that journey. Yeah, and I I would add a way that I think women have also changed the rabbinate is um, added um, rituals that were not thought of because when men were only in leadership at no fault of their own, but like didn't have a personal experience of, um, maybe they had experience with miscarriage, but not like through um, their body in the way that women do. And so I think um, as as Rabbi Katie so beautifully said and spoke about is um, the importance of having people who look like you is also people who think of things that ritually may speak to you, you and your experiences. So I think a lot of, um, I mean, we all know Judaism was created by men. <laughs> for um, thousands of years. And so there were many rituals that were just simply missing, especially with pregnancy and, um, and pregnancy loss, um, as well as other other moments in life, even um, menopause, right? Like there are things that people do to mark that ritually now that just might not have been on, on the radar. So um, that I would add that to something that women have added to the rabbinate. I'm also thinking of a very uh, formative moment for me. I had so, so many moments at the pulpit that were really, that marked my soul forever giving sermons. And one was about the feminine presence of God, like the divine as feminine, trying to bring that. So some of it's like concrete, like actually exploring those ideas, but some of it is just like by virtue of your, your voice, who, how, what you invoke. And, and I think thinking about the holy in a new way, just by, by being a woman on the bima, I think it changes the paradigm. I also think as someone that's forged um, a lot of her rabbinate in partnership, first as co-associate rabbis and then as co-seniors, which is radically different. It's a whole different uh, uh, and wonderful and maybe messier in some ways, but I think that's also a feminist, a feminist model in and of itself because it puts partnership at the top. It's um, not so linear. Um, there's a chevruta, there's a dynamic learning dyad at the top. And that's like a really different model. And I think that there is, and that's more and more common. Uh, when we were first trying it, it was a little, little, little less, less common. I had one other um, facet that's occurring to me and it's, and it's, um, it's a complicated thing because there are women, women rabbis and rabbis of all genders who express leadership in all sorts of different ways. So there's not only one, there's not only one set of characteristics that a woman leader has. That being said, I think there are some unique strengths that many women who are leaders have and the language that we use, the way that we express that strength, the experiences we've had, so that we we express those models. Like it's not there. There are ways to influence people and dynamics. There are ways to support people, and um, and to command to command respect that don't always look like a big, loud, booming voice that has been the model of male leadership from the pulpit for for decades and centuries in every denomination. So I think opening up the, the mind of all congregants, of all individuals that, you know, strength and leadership can have lots of volumes and lots of intonations and, um, and can look nurturing 
and can look strong and um, strident. I think those are that's important too, just in our in our everyday in our everyday lives. The strength has many faces. And, and I would just I would just add one more thing, which is um, you know connecting to what Rabbi Bowman said is that the more women that you have in leadership positions, like clergy like a vice president, right? The, the more that our young people will see and our young women will see that there are no limits to what they, that they, who and what they can become. And I think that that is incredibly important. That is, and I, I was gonna just, I was going to add the fact that I always felt that women who were come girls, young people who were in youth group or whatever, wherever I was working, that, I always felt I could open doors for them. And that was very, the other thing is spirituality. I don't know, I don't know if women bring a greater sense of spirituality to the congregation in general or not. I just know, I gave a sermon about God once, early, I think early in my rabbit. And when I sat back down, Harry leaned over to me and he said, can't talk about God in a sermon. And I thought, oh, or if you can't talk about God in a sermon, where can you talk about God? And he and I talked about it later. But anyway, by the end of my time there, he was giving sermons about God. And I think I opened, if I opened that door, if that was a female thing to do, I'm proud of it. I don't know if it was, but I am proud. Thank you. Um, here's a question that um, I probably should have asked earlier, but it just occurred to me. Um, in your, when you were going, each of you going through rabbinic school, how many women were in your class as opposed to men? And did you feel that you had to kind of fight your way through? Set, I'm thinking of um, an experience that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had in law school where um, one of the leaders of the school said to her, I forget if it was at, uh, she ended up at Columbia, um, but uh, you know, how does it feel that you are taking up a space that a man should have? Uh, for all, there were a few women in the class. Um, did any of you meet that kind of resistance in rabbinic school? I, I certainly, I mean, I, there were, I think there were more women than men um, in, in my class. That said, in, in my HUC days, most of the professors, not all, but most were more kind of grandfatherly types. Um, wonderful teachers, many, but not people that I related to as, as someone, you know, it's just a, a different generation, a different mm -hmm. gender. I think since my ordination, that really has changed. And I think that's, incredibly exciting. Uh, I, and I think there were a few moments, nothing, there were a few moments that were patronizing at best, maybe mm -hmm. a little, maybe a little worse than that. <laughs> um, but, but I think that that is something incredibly exciting that is emerging where the role, the professors are, are women. I think, I think that's true. I personally had no problems, but I think it was because I was older. I was older than everybody, you know, I mean, as I said, I was the second quote unquote older. I was the second student at HUC who wasn't, you know, coming right out of college and whatever. So um, 
I, I would say there were classmates of mine who did have trouble with professors. Mm-hmm. I was about the same age as some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting what you said, Tara. Some of them really were much older. But anyway, I didn't have problems, although I do say that some of my, some of my friends did. So mm-hmm. that was long ago. I was ordained in 1984 yeah. before half of you were even born. <laughs> yeah. so, um, two-thirds of my class was were women um in in uh, jerusalem and about half once i got to cincinnati i agree with rabbi feldman that um my experience in the classroom was almost entirely dominated by male professors at cincinnati there were a few really wonderful female female professors but it was a very male driven um curriculum teaching style and those and, and I think um, it seemed to me what I, what I remember feeling was that those women who were professors were, fe- were having that kind of struggle themselves, you know, wanting mm-hmm. to establish themselves and to be taken as seriously and be, being granted it, the, the respect that they deserved more so than I was having a struggle as a student. Um, mm-hmm. There was a culture certainly at that campus, which has been unfortunately, uh, I mean, not unfortunately brought to light, but the, the, the magnitude of that issue is now widely known. That certainly the, there was a, there was a, there were a group of boys and men who were, um, who had their own kind of club that, that women were not really involved in. But I, I had, because I think because I had been treated with such respect as an intern and a student at Temple Israel, because I'd had the model of Rabbi Cohen working with her during that year, because I had the blessing of working as an intern under Rabbi Sissy Koran, a blessed memory, in uh, at Rockdale in Cincinnati, that that didn't affect me because I knew that um, I knew I didn't need them to be successful and to find my place. And so that I was lucky in that way. That wasn't the experience for every student, every woman student, but for me, um, I'd had such fortifying experiences that um, I didn't feel like I had to fight to keep my place. One of the um, other pieces that's in that report that um, Rabbi Katie is uh, referring to is um, leading into ordination and uh, job searches. Women, obviously, much more often than their male classmates. Their male classmates were told to prepare their sermons, their portfolios, their teachings, and the female um, graduates, which I can remember from my time uh, in 2015 going into placement, um, being told a lot more to focus on how we look, what we're wearing, how we do our hair, how we do our makeup, so much less about the materials that we're presenting and much more about how I, I was told that I would not get a job, which I was wearing right now, um, for wearing a hair tie on my wrist, which I did during all my interviews. And you still hired me. We did. We yeah. did. Never looked back. <laughs> um, I will say, I will say when I think about that time during going through interviewing in particular, um, there was a consideration. I, I was, I was married at the time and Adam and I were contemplating when to begin building our family and the question of whether or not one wanted to be pregnant during interviews was definitely a consideration. And I'm sure that would be with in lots of fields where, and, and, but the, but the idea that, you know, you, you might be a less appealing candidate if you are, you know, if you're pregnant, um, 
is was is was just sort of a fact a fact at that at that time for for us. And but that being said, I I loved building my family at Temple Israel in Memphis. Um, I was not pregnant during <laughs> during interviews. I went I had had <laughs> Gracie was a baby. Um, the, uh, at that time I was nursing during interviews, but. Uh, but I had both my sons in Memphis and I found Temple Israel to be such a wonderful place to have my, to have, to begin my family and my, um, I think that that cycle of our, of our family's life was the congregation understood it as a beautiful and a beautiful thing that would deepen our relationships there. And I think deepen my rabbinate. I'm grateful for that attitude that I encountered almost universally. Um, Tara, there was one quick the whole, I just never forget the warm embrace of the community and what it was like to have a baby there. And just, I think it informs my children's lives forever. Like feeling that, that warmth and that connectivity. Sorry. No, that's quite all right. Uh, there was one question from the viewers uh, for you, specifically for you, asking what you and Mayor are planning to do once you make Aliyah. <laughs> and I responded privately. That's the question oh. of the hour. Um, okay. Many things. We will not. We will not have a congress. There's many leads, and we'll do a whole template of things, probably connected to the not-for-profit world, connected to peace efforts. I just wrote a Jewish yoga book. I'm hoping to make that be part of uh, my, my, my work. Um, we will, we'll do many things, but it won't be a congregation. And that is, it's, so it's a very poignant departure, this one for me, because there's nothing like a congregation and the depth of relationship that happens right. there. Well, congregations will miss you. Okay, one quick last question, unless there are any, anything else from the viewers. Um, how can congregants and leaders what can congregants and leaders do to support women in the rabbinate? What can we as a con what can I as a congregant do to support specifically women as opposed to men? <laughs> well, you, I, all of us have experienced that support. So already you know it. The women of Memphis, we women rabbis from Memphis, all felt the support of the congregation. So I'm not sure I can pinpoint why I felt it, but everybody was so warm and so accepting and so embracing of me as a human being, not just a rabbi, but as a person too. Although if, I, if, you know, if they ever needed me in the rabbi position, I was right there, but also people were just warm to me, just cared about me as a person. We're thrilled when I got married. I mean, you know, it's just it's a warm, wonderful place. Yeah. I guess you women of Memphis ought to just teach other women in other congregations where there are problems, what to do. What can I say? Just be yourselves, just be your warm, welcoming selves. So, I, I miss you all. I don't wanna bring it down. But I will say, Connie, like, I agree with you. There are so many supportive people, but there are also people who say things behind our backs, any rabbi, not just men, not just women. Um, and so like, even though we experience um, such an embrace from so many um, people, especially those that are here with us today and are supporting the celebration of 50 years of women in the rabbinate and these five female rabbis 
who've been part of the story and fabric of Temple Israel. Um, when I think of this question, immediately my thought was, and I have had experience here, hearing about things people have said about me behind my back that are painful and hurtful. I hear oh, these wonderful things to my face as well, but I, I, I guarantee all of us on the screen have had that experience. It happens to every rabbi, not just females, but I think sometimes the things that are said about females are connected to gender. And one of the things I think um, a congregant or a leader can do is to challenge someone on that it, out of a place of love, just like when we hear someone say something that's racist um, or homophobic or something like that, like we need to um, respond and correct them um, or suggest, um, would you say that about a male rabbi? Would you um, say that about someone else? And so um, that would be what I would say. But I, I agree that we're, there are many supportive people, but there's still work to be done. And, and I would I would definitely agree with Rabbi Wilner, and I I think there are always benefits to having um, uh, gender bias training because I think just as any other diversity training we need, I think that we all have biases internally that we don't recognize or know about um, that we you know we just do, um, and so to identify those, to acknowledge those, and learn how to battle those is incredibly important, and not to be taught how to do them by your woman rabbi um, or by um, a, a rabbi of color, you know, or a, maybe a Jew of color of your community. All of those things are incredibly important and have to be ongoing because those biases don't go away. Um, and and it's, it's just part of society and we need to learn about what we have internally and change them. So that's what I would add for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that, with both of those, all of the comments um, that have been made. I think what we're, what will really, it, with in the case with all isms, with all identity-based prejudices, I mean, we're talking about a, a necessary culture change over, that's gonna, that takes time, it takes years, takes generations in some cases. And so I think if you are a congregant who cares about that, which I, I imagine all of us do, to just be attuned to the ways that the culture works around you. There are, are all employees respected for the work that they are doing? Are, is everyone paid, um, you know, a, a living wage? Are, are salaries appropriately um, created? Do we give as much respect to the women who are doing women's um, work as we do to men? And, and finding, I think, um, in each of ourselves, no matter what your field, how you can best lead. I, I will, I, it has been such an amazing experience when I look back on my time in Memphis, the, the, there's so many things that are formative, but one of them is the partnerships that exist at Temple Israel between lay leaders and um, professional staff worked with some of the most outstanding board members and executive committee members and presidents that any rabbi could ever possibly hope to, to work with. And m very special also are the, the women leaders that I've had the opportunity to work with at Temple. And I think the more of them, the better. You know, we have wonderful women throughout our movement um, and, and, to, and to believe in each of ourselves that we have the capacity to lead and that our influence is important in our Jewish community, that, that supports women, rabbis, all genders, rabbis. Good for all. I agree with 
everything you, you all have said. I'm sad to hear, Bess, that you have had that experience, but maybe nobody dared tell me. I'm sure people right. said Whether, whether or not you like, ever heard about it, I guarantee it's just part of being a rabbi, uh, sure. male or female. People ch- chit-chat about us and our sermons and what we wear and who we are. And Of course. <laughs> And I'm sure as a congregant, I know that, that those things happen to men too, you know, that, mm-hmm. that yep. chit chat about sermons and, and maybe even what they're wearing. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that I don't know if I've ever heard. But um, anyway, well, I think we've come to the end of our time. Unfortunately, no. I could keep this going for a long time. Love reconnecting with all of you. And uh, thank you. Just thank you so much for participating in this. Uh, we had a good audience, and um, I'm really, really, really thrilled to, and honored to be among you. So good luck to all of you, and uh, thank you again. Thank you I for everyone who joined in, in making this little uh, pipe dream of mine come true of having this reunion, <laughs> and I think we can see from the number of congregants, both near and far, who wanted to join this conversation. You all have meant so many, pe- so much to the people of Memphis and to the communities where you currently serve that wanted to be um, a piece of this. So I'm just filled with such gratitude. And if anyone out there has an idea um, or an excuse for this group to get together again, I can do my best to get them. It was too fun being in the same Zoom room with you all. So thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care. You too.